Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good evening. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. One of the perks of my job is I get to introduce you to other people's buildings as if it were my own. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Cass Business School to this event. And Cass, along with Taylor Bennett and the Financial Times, are our partners on this event, and very aptly so. For those of you that don't know what this event is, other than the specifics of the topic for which you've been invited, we run a sort of intellectual club for those people who want to be... uh, stimulated and uh, provoked in their thinking and so no pressure but that's what the panel is going to do. I'm going to hand over to Michael Skopinka, the um, special reports and assistant editor of the Financial Times. He is more polymath than most FT people are and they're all polymaths but the headlines are he's been an editor of many of its most Uh, revered sections, management editor, he's now a columnist and the special reports editor. He's going to keep people running to time. I'm going to remind you to do the mobile phone thing and switch them off. I'm going to remind you that this event is as on the record as everything is these days and particularly that it's being podcast, so don't speak unless you want to be preserved vocally in aspic forever and on that note i'm going to introduce you to michael who's going to introduce you to the panel thank you thank you very much julia and uh thank you all for coming tonight the topic as you know for this evening is the job market and uh, we meet of course at uh, a time when it's very very difficult for job seekers My own newspaper today uh, carried the news that um, there are fewer graduate opportunities, fewer employment opportunities than there have been for uh, quite a long time, despite the fact that uh, this year we will have 50,000 extra graduates uh, graduating from universities this year. Uh, They will graduate into uh, an unemployment market which uh, is not unprecedented, Those of us who are uh, old enough to have entered the workforce in the uh, early to mid-1980s will remember something very similar. But uh, it's a very, very difficult time. Uh, Unemployment among people aged 18 to 24 is 18%. That compares with uh, 8% among the general population. Uh, Investment banks are offering fewer graduate entry-level roles than they were. Um, There are some bright spots. Um, Accountancy firms seem to be offering a good number of of graduate entries. Uh, Teach First, a a very valuable program which takes graduates directly into uh, schools and to some of the more difficult schools, is uh, recruiting heavily. Uh, On the other hand, Graduates are facing new competition, competition they might not have thought about before because of the government's decision to abolish the default retirement age of 65. And uh, I think it's something like over 800,000 people over 65 remaining in the workforce. Um, To discuss all this, I'd like to welcome our um, panel tonight. Uh, Beginning um, on my left, uh, James Kahn, who uh, I'm sure uh, most of you will know from his uh, role uh, in Dragon's Den. 
Uh, James is the author of a new book called uh, Get the Job You Really Want, which uh, is obviously very much to the point, and uh, I don't think we need any further explanations to what's in it. I think the title speaks for it. Uh, James is, uh, as you know, one of um, Britain's most dynamic, most successful entrepreneurs. He, he and we're going to be talking about qualifications. He himself left school at 16 with no qualifications. Uh, in 2004, he founded the private equity firm Hamilton Bradshaw. And uh, he's also chairman of The Big Issue, as well as of the uh, James Kahn Foundation to help underprivileged children in the UK and abroad. Um, James, I should just say, is going to have to slip away early. So uh, apologies uh, from him in advance. But uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll hear from him first. Uh, next to me is um, Sarah Juillet, who is Director of Postgraduate Careers at uh, our host tonight, the Cass Business School. Um, Sarah is a law school graduate and then spent some time in investment banking at uh, J.P. Morgan and um, Bear Stearns and then uh, at Lehman Brothers. And uh, after Lehman's collapse, she spent uh, 12 months at DBM Outplacement Consultants as the recruitment manager, uh, helping clients who had um, been made redundant to access the hidden job market. And uh, she joined CAS in September 2009. Sitting next to me, um, Suzanne Moore, um, a name I'm sure many of you will recognize from her uh, columns in the um, Guardian and the Mail on Sunday. Um, um, Suzanne is also on the advisory board of our joint host tonight of Editorial Intelligence, and she's director of communications of a new company called Family of Rock Limited, which uh, maybe she can tell us a bit about. And um, our final speaker is uh, Chantal Tregier, who is a director of Taylor Bennett, um, recruitment consultancy, recruitment company. She has a degree in English from Victoria University in New Zealand, and uh, she handles uh, senior corporate appointments uh, at Taylor Bennett uh, within FTSE, Euro 300, and public sector companies, and uh, is the practice head for internal communications. Um, we're going to have uh, some views from our panelists first, and then uh, we'll open it up to the floor. But uh, let's start with, I suppose, the most pressing question for uh, graduates coming out of university today, or indeed people leaving school today who are considering university, uh, this very difficult job market ahead of them. For anybody coming into the job market now, and perhaps we could start with, with you, James, what are the most important things that they need to do? Um, I think when you're looking for uh, your next career or looking for your first job, uh, I've spent many, many years interviewing a whole range of people, and I generally find it incredibly frustrating how ill-prepared people generally are when they start that career search. When you look at the information that's available today by the internet, Google, etc., that there genuinely is no reason or no excuse not to be immaculately prepared. And when you consider that getting that job could change your life, if you put it into that context, there ought to be a message in there that says, if it's so important, then you absolutely need to understand everything about the organization that you're applying for, everything about the individual that you're going to meet, every detail about the position that you're applying for. A lot of that information is available on the company's career site, their website, information, brochures. And yet when I actually do meet somebody and say, tell me a bit about your perception of the organization, tell me about your understanding of the opportunity, it's very, very limited. Um, just to give you an example, only a week ago one of my investment businesses had asked me to select a finance director for them. 
and I had a short list of three candidates that I met. And my first question to each of those candidates were, before you came to see me today, did you go to company's house and download the company's accounts as a finance director to kind of prepare yourself for, for the discussion? Of the three candidates I met, how many do you think actually had downloaded the accounts? None. So when you put that into context, had you have downloaded those accounts, the quality of that discussion that they would have had with me, even a comment like, James, I've noticed that the company's asset base has declined over the last two years, or I see your margins are improving, or I notice that you know, the, the, the level of debt in the business has gone down, immediately puts me in a different position of saying, actually, he knows what he's talking about, he's clearly done the research, and mentally, you know, the light bulb goes on. The mere fact he said, actually, uh, I didn't realise you, you were expecting me to do that. I said, absolutely wasn't expecting, but I just wanted to understand what level of research you did. Clearly, this is your final interview as you're meeting with me. I just wanted to understand how seriously you've taken the opportunity of coming along for a final interview. So that's just a very simple illustration of what a £3 investment would have done to get my accounts and actually understand what he was going to be talking about. So a lot of the book that, that I've focused on is my sort of 25 years experience of meeting and interviewing people and just consistently being surprised at something I consider to be such an important event in somebody's life, yet the importance that people give to that, it, it just generally is surprising. I think in the graduate market, you know, I think there are a number of situations whereby right now there are not that many positions available. Despite all the research that I think we're fed at the moment, my expectations, I actually think the number of jobs coming into the market for graduates will increase this year against the market uh, perceptions. I think the general economy, I expect to do better. I think financial services has done better in the last two years than anybody could have expected and I can actually anticipate more jobs will come out of that. I think consulting firms, accounting firms have had a very difficult period in the last couple of years, but actually I see some, some green shoots there too. So I do actually think the market will pick up this year. I think graduates who are in a position where they don't have a job, I'm an absolutely strong believer that rather than sitting at home thinking about it, I think any opportunity to gain work experience I think is an absolute must. I think. The, the information out today talking about employers giving more value for somebody who actually has bridged a gap and, and done something practical I think does make a difference. So I think strategically I think they should be out there, you should be networking, I think you should do everything you can to put yourself in a position where you become an attractive prospect to a potential employer. Thanks, James. Let's pick that point up. As, as James said, uh, there was an article um, in The Guardian today uh, saying that uh, employers are really insisting that people have experience with them. They are preferring their own interns, people who they've got some experience of. Now, these jobs are, are quite difficult to get, and uh, perhaps I could bring in uh, Chantal here. Taylor Bennett runs some internship programs. Um, for some people, these are far harder to get than others, these internships. Absolutely. I think one of the areas about um, where we've looked at looking at making a difference in the market is the, in the diversity discussions with the graduates and trying to help that uh, group enter into the communication specialism. And it was an area where, where our clients were saying, um, where, where is the diversity, where is the growth in communications? And it was something we sought to address ourselves by introducing 
a training scheme to equip people from a background that may not have even considered communications as, a, as an opportunity for their own career development. Um, and so working with the University of East London developed an internship programme and formed partnerships with corporates who would then take our interns into for work experience, so McKinsey and ITN, um, the Glyndebourne and so forth, various different organisations. Um, worked extensively with us and that actually came out of a, a process of um, whittling down by looking at over, you know, in some cases a uh, hundred applicants who would then fill out an application form and we would drill that down to around 20 people to come in for an assessment day and we tried to give the same thorough and, and rigorous interviewing structure so that they had panels, they had uh, all sorts of processes and numeracy and um, writing and group exercises to look for leadership, to look for analysis, to look for thought, to look to how they might benefit and be of use um, to their employer that their skills could be transferable into a new world. And that's been really successful. So it's a minority. We are only in communications and it's meant that we've actually helped equip 23 people to get there. But it's about equipping them with the skills and um, I think in terms of internship programs, they're paid. I think it's quite important that internship programs are paid to encourage people to take it seriously, to equip them, to help them because people from, um, particularly um, students, find it so difficult to um, do these free work placements. Um, and then they've got something to say and I know that our internship, have this thing James said about networking and we encourage them to network, we encourage them to build an alumni so that they can then go out there and share their experiences. So year on year as we run the programme they can then share with the next year what worked for them, how to get in. But it's a tough world and communications is, you know, often seen as quite a cliquey group and so-and-so's son gets a work internship for the summer. But actually employers nowadays are looking for far different backgrounds and skills and we know from experience from the people that have taken interns in that um, particularly I think ITN for example just said something that their own employer employees were so thrilled to have this internship program. It, it helped their employees understand some of the issues faced from this audience and um, so on. So it can be beneficial to both sides and if they make that break and they have to go through this rigorous piece and it's only by being, they have to do the research, they have to um, you know, present well and show potential. Um, so it, they, they work. Our, our success story is that internships can be really, really good for them. So Chantal's mentioned, well, two important aspects to the program that Taylor Bennett runs. First of all, they look for interns, they look for interns and they give opportunities to interns from the kind of backgrounds who wouldn't necessarily have the contacts, wouldn't necessarily have the parents or friends to find these internships, and you also make sure that they're paid. Um, as we know, a lot of internships aren't like that. They are handed out by word of mouth to people who the company knows, and many of them aren't paid. And I wonder, Suzanne, if you could address the issue of whether you think this is a great inequality in the jobs market, and if there's anything we can do about it. Well, I definitely think it's an inequality, and certainly in the case of media, I mean, you just end up with more and more nepotism and uh, locking out of people who can't get in. I mean, when I first started in newspapers, you know, I mean, I was lucky, but you could get into newspapers. I see it as um, it's more and more difficult now. Um, and I'm the mother of somebody who's now doing a free internship for a very, very good charity. So I feel quite complicated about it. The charity she works for, I totally support. She had to go through a, a very rigorous uh, application 
process to get it. It was nothing to do with me. Um, she's got it. It's good, but it's unpaid. And she can only do it because I can keep her. I also feel really sympathetic to this generation of graduates and the people, you know, some of the students who were protesting because they had been sold the idea that a, a degree was a certain qualification that would get them an okay first job. And they're being told over and over again no, we just want this experience. And it is more and more, they're more and more feeling locked out of that, that first job. I think once they're on the way, they're on the way. But it's really, really difficult. And I have a, um, a lot of sympathy. And I wonder whether it will mean that lots of uh, less parents as well will, will fund their children through university. Because you're, you're kind of asking yourself, well, what, what am I going to get out of it? If they can get a job at 18, what, and if they do the gap year thing, you know, you've already spent a fortune, um, is it worth it? Yeah. Well, let's come to you, Sarah. You're uh, at a university, at a postgraduate university. But just let's look at this question of degrees generally, uh, particularly as from next year they're going to be at the undergraduate level a lot more expensive than they are now. Are they still worth it? Yes, absolutely, and particularly I think with postgraduate degrees. Um, I believe it's the Association um, of Graduate Careers Advisory Services who did a study saying that uh, postgraduates are more likely to be employable, um, particularly in the current market. It certainly will buy them um, additional time to get that valuable work experience, quite often through work placements or internships. It will provide the opportunities for networking through the alumni network and with fellow students. Quite often companies will come on campus to present to them. Um, so it will provide those additional opportunities that, that potentially you wouldn't have at 18 or wouldn't think to look at. Right. James, could we pick up this, this issue of you don't have any contacts, you don't know anybody, you don't know where to start. If you can't get a job, how do you go about getting that first internship or that first foot through the door? Um, I think that You've got to be a little bit creative. I mean, I, maybe because I'm on television, I get inundated with people writing to me randomly. So, you know, I, I think that you have to do all of the above. I don't think there is one magical solution that you say you must follow your first career advice. I think you network, you speak to people, you attend events, um, but also you make a list of the organisations that you ideally would like to work for. You know, every one of those organisations you know, has a website, has contact details. And again, there is no excuse not to be able to do that. I think there are, so, so for example, if you take in that situation, just spraying email CVs is, is probably not the smartest thing to do. And I'll give you a live example. Two weeks ago, my reception called me and said, James, somebody has just dropped off a private and confidential letter for you. Would you like me to bring it up? Now, because we don't get too many private and confidential hand-delivered letters, so I said, fine. And it was somebody's CV, beautifully written, nice paper, with a picture, fantastic covering letter. Now, had that have come via the email, I probably wouldn't have even got to see it. But the fact that, that he or she took the initiative and thought, I need to get that in front of him, and in a way that he will see it, the fact it didn't arrive at 9 o'clock in the morning, it came at quarter past 11, I think she'd always thought about the fact in the in-tray post, he won't see it because it will be in a pile, but at 11.15, it's a bit of an odd time. So just because I found it quite humorous, I called her and said, listen, got your CV. Firstly, can I ask you, did you personally hand deliver it? She said, I did actually, big tick in the box for me. Uh, and I said, was it coincidental the time or did you think about it? And she told me exactly that. She said, I thought if I do it at the end of the day, 
you might not take any notice. If I do it at the beginning of the day, it'll be in a, in a batch. So I had to pick a time that I thought, you know. So the moral of what I'm saying is, that individual is no different to anybody else. He or she needs a job and they want to make a difference. And thinking outside the box, being creative, you know, people that you know, friends that you know, you know, getting them to introduce you to potential employers. And I think that the key message, and I 100% accept the argument about whether interns should be paid or not paid, I think with 18% unemployment, I think if you can get in and you can get that experience, I think it's worth doing. Clearly there are financial challenges, but if, what do you need to do to present yourself better? I think there's no question. I think the subject of whether you should or shouldn't have a degree, I think if you look at the fact that this is for the rest of your life, I think today we do live in a global economy. We do have you know, a global employment workforce. Around the world, most countries are taking the principle of degrees a lot more seriously. If you look at the amount of graduates that Asia is pumping out by the millions now, I think longer term, if you're in a position where you're not a graduate, I, I do honestly think you're handicapped. So I think there's no doubt in my mind, I, you know, look at me, I, I'm one to talk, I left school at 16 with nothing, but today if I had that choice, I absolutely would recommend the, the degree and I think anything that you can do, the, the issue is not to be sitting there thinking, you know, where do I start? You know, newspapers are full of jobs, there are hundreds of job boards, there are thousands of jobs out there, there are opportunities. You know, I'm not saying every one of them are right for you, but you need a place to start and you just have to use initiative. James, there's a question I think is on everybody's mind. We all want to know, did you give her a job? Uh, I've got her in for a second interview. Um, you know, and I mean, just to give you an idea, I mean, now 14% of my workforce come via the intern route. We've genuinely found that people, when they come through an intern, it gives you an opportunity to see them, to work with them, to see where they fit in, etc. And if I'm really honest, we don't hire them on the basis we'll give them a permanent job. But I've been absolutely staggered at how three months later the number of employees come to me and say, James, we should give her a crack. She's amazing, they've done this, they've done that, which of course you never get through an interview. And I think that opportunity to see somebody work is the best way you could sell yourself. And I think the number of people that we've converted, and I sit there and think, but we don't have a vacancy. And then I get so much pressure from some of the employees who desperately want me to give them a job. So I, I mean, I'm a big believer in the intern program. Um, Suzanne, if we could just pick up, um, you know, you, you asked whether, whether parents are going to feel it's worthwhile for their children to go to university, and James was making the point, in a, the competitive market we're in now, not just in this country, but internationally, uh, you are at an advantage or you're not at a disadvantage if you've got a degree. On the other hand, we've seen through the government's funding proposals, uh, there's not much keenness on the government's part for general arts degrees, literature, humanities degrees, there's a lot of focus on science, you know, what you would regard as the kind of more technically scientific degrees. How, do you think that's going to influence the way people look at it, or do you think it should? I think it is. I mean, on some courses you've got 80% cuts in arts and humanities at UEL and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I was really pleased that the government, in the end, because of lobbying, kept the science budget as it was, because, I mean, if you look at what Obama is doing, he knows where the new jobs are going to come from, and it will be via biotech and all that stuff. So I think you had to protect science, but the cost of that was that you lost uh, some of the creative stuff, and we are very, very good at it. I mean, Britain is brilliant at creative stuff, and 
business sometimes tends to think, well, that's kind of arts and it doesn't create jobs. But of course it does. If you make a film, you need your electricians, you need your plumbers, you need, you know, arts is something that we're traditionally brilliant at. Um, and I would like, you know, I would like that not to have been cut in the kind of devastating way it has been. Um, but I have to say, again, as a parent, if my child said, I want to spend three years doing art, I would have to wonder about where that would lead, you know? I mean, will, will we be pushing our kids into the kind of old vocations, or will we actually let them create? Right. Um, Sarah, what do you like your, your students to have done before they come to you, or does it not make any difference to you? Um, ideally, yes, we'd like them to have um, some work experience, whether it is via an internship or uh, paid or unpaid. But generally, I think um, because particularly here we, we have specialist master's degrees, um, they have to really show an interest in that particular subject if that's what they're looking at as a vocation. Um, there's no, no point really turning up at an employer chance your arm if you like saying well I've heard banking pays well therefore I'm applying here there's I think 80 I think the it's averaging now 80 applications per graduate place so you really have to distinguish yourself from from everybody else and one of those ways is the the work experience but also by networking getting those personal referrals um, and also having demonstrating on your CV things like teamwork and social skills motivation so it could be that you've done a gap year and you've taught English um, in, a, in a disadvantaged country it, it could be any of those things but they're the things that employers are generally looking for as well as those qualifications right um, Chantal you tend to place more experienced people generally, but you do have experience through your internship program of this initial job market. In the communications field, what are you looking for? What, what sorts of prior skills do you want from people or prior experience? Well, in terms of the levels, if we were talking more senior level, then, then uh, actually going back to this level of a degree, having a, a first degree and ideally actually arts degrees are still really sought after. It's showing ability to analyse and to persuade and to position and to take a case and argue a point on either side. So certainly initial first degree. Actually, funny enough, it was about six years ago that we got our first request, very specific request from a client that they wanted an MBA. And, they, and that was something, and that's, that was quite rare um, for communication specialists to necessarily have taken the time out of their career to, to do a, an MBA. So um, uh, there are a number, but it was one of those things that people now, when they look to their career and maybe they're feeling that they're plateauing a bit is what could they add value? Where could they, where the, where could they improve their skill set? And really that's about language, business language, because it's, you know, with communications, it's about understanding the business and correlating what the strategy is for your communications to match with your business. And so business savviness and that sense of how the, what the commercial world is looking for, even if you're working in a non-commercial environment, really understanding what the drivers are for the organisation to be successful. So, so so in the broader skills are of course cogency, um, ability to argue your point and to be persuasive. Um, and listening, you know, everyone talks about communications out there speaking the whole time, but really a really successful individual can show that they've listened and taken the right points and translated. And so taking the complex and making it simple is actually some of the degrees training. Um, so it's very generic, and of course each discipline within communications will have its own core criteria. 
Um, but there's an intrinsic uh, there's a d debate. Obviously, it's about personality, it's profile, it's positioning, it's it's how you communicate, how you hold yourself, and how re researched you are. You can improve your own networking skills and your impact, um, coupled with intelligence and the ability to um, understand the matter. So it, it's very varied, and, and clients. Every client is different. Every client is looking for a different fit. They're looking for different developmental opportunities. And I think we commented earlier, actually the change in the marketplace for the last couple of years or certainly the last 18 months has been a much greater focus on the um, in, in their existing employees so um, not so much good news for our business of course but um, actually long term it will be that clients have looked more closely at their own talent and not just merrily recruited in so there has been an opportunity within this market for people who might have um, been looked over to then be developed and managers have had to give more time to bring on more skills whereas before they would have just maybe been put in the sort of oh well they're okay pile but actually they've been really worked and developed on so long term that'll mean that those people have now got broader experiences bases and clients are internationally moving their um, employees they're bringing them over from different countries to share so although you know, the job market might have seen a little bit quiet in the last 18 months there's certainly been opportunity and it's certainly been a time uh, for people to develop at the same at the same and that's quite interesting for us when we're interviewing is you know if the people have done a secondment they've been working in an agency they've been seconded somewhere or they've or they've actually been stretched and they've been put in some different department for 6 months that's really quite interesting it shows they've got a different perspective Right. Um, Sarah, I mean, we've heard about, uh, well, a couple of trends now, uh, uh, companies and banks uh, demanding uh, prior experience. And we've also heard about companies developing their own employees rather than taking it anymore. What, what, what is the situation for people emerging from business school at the moment? Traditionally, they went into investment banking, into management consulting. Is that still the case? Or is that changing? And how easy or difficult <coughs> are they finding it to get work immediately afterwards? That, that still is very much the case. Um, certainly, we found this year that actually uh, at the graduate levels, that would be for, for the sort of postgraduate masters, that actually the banking, consulting, accounting roles, the number have gone up because they actually made such a reduction in 2009 and they're now having to plan in terms of pipeline. So hiring graduates quite often is on a two-year programme, so it very much is a future forecast. So that, that area certainly seems that it's, it's growing once more. However, we're seeing um, probably a much more diverse interest now. So whereas historically students were very focused perhaps on banking or consulting, they're now considering um, maybe more so the entrepreneurial route or not-for-profit, um, really just keeping their options slightly more open. Right. Um, before we move on to some other issues, I thought this might be a good time to uh, open it up to any questions or comments from the floor from all of you. Um, if you would like to say something or ask something, please could you raise your hand and a microphone will come to you. And could I ask you, as I said, this is being recorded and podcast, if you could tell us who you are and where you come from. We've got a question over here. Maurice Mendoza uh, from a company called Mendoza Media. Um, I just wanted to ask about languages. Um, I guess there was a time when English was... Uh, the primary global language and you didn't need to think about it too much but I'm just wondering for children now coming out of school and then going to university do they need to seriously consider having a, another language and an understanding of other cultures? 
James, do you want to start with that? Um, I think I go back to the point. I think we are absolutely living in a global economy. And I think, to me, it's probably more important today than I think it's ever been before. And I think just because of the impact of technology and how, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting, I was at a presentation last night and I learned that actually Britain is the world's leading exporter of online goods and services. So our international strength around the world and how we sell goods and services, it's better than it's ever been before. And the importance of understanding cultures, languages, and to be able to maximize an international business, I think is an absolute must. And I think the education system probably should do more to encourage other languages. Can I just ask, I mean, uh, for non-English speakers, uh, there's a priority to learn English. Uh, the United States, uh, obviously the most useful language to learn is Spanish. What language do you think students, children in this country should be learning? I think Chinese would be a great idea. <laughs> Not an easy one to learn. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the concept of whether it's Spanish, German, French, but I think, you know, I, although I, I say that jokingly, but it's interesting, when I go to colleges and universities around the country, the one thing that genuinely does impress me is the number of Chinese students I see across the board. And, you know, so what are the Chinese saying to me that they're recognizing that English as a second language is clearly very important? The question is, the English-speaking world are not saying the same in reverse. So actually, when there's 1.4 billion people, if we're to believe the statistics that we read, that China will become a global superpower in the next 10 or 15 years. It's economic strength and the number of jobs that it will create. Why shouldn't Chinese be a language on the agenda? Chantal? Yeah, there's a theory on that, though, is I think that um, uh, if children have learned any language up, up before the age of 10, if they've been learning early, then they're much better equipped to pick up a variety of languages. And if you look, you know, even the fact they're talking about bringing back Latin and that Latin can form the basis of very many different ways of understanding other languages. Um, uh, certainly, interestingly, I've just been doing some work with a, a Swiss client, and they've just said a minimum of four languages, full stop. And you're going, right, OK, that's quite interesting. But of course, um, and then and it was slight caveat, well, as long as they're not, as long as they've got an international outlook, as well as ideally having at least two, and of course, French and German would be ideal. But they didn't really mind. They'd hired a Japanese speaker. They'd hired all sorts. But they really felt that um, from the comms perspective, people tend to be quite UK-centric, and the UK is the sort of center of media activity. And it all tends a little bit sort of insular. And they, do, they don't want that at all. They want to make sure that someone has um, done two years overseas. They've worked somewhere else. They've, they, they work in a really multi-national sort of, um, organization. So absolutely, I think languages are going to be essential. I have an eight-year-old. I absolutely want my son to be speaking certainly one other language. Um, well, um, and I met a couple of candidates recently who've one who's got twins and they're both doing Chinese um, already, age six or something. So she's on the ball. Um, uh, so yes, absolutely. And clients look for it all the time. It just shows a, a different um, appreciation of other cultures and interests. And so, um, and, and we all too often try and get past with some sort of, you know, school school French. And, and it's, it's to be your advantage as a career. And one of our clients is a FTSE comms director a couple of years ago, um, took a year out to go and learn Arabic. And that's what he wanted to do. But actually, it was also really, really valid to get him going in a different, different, <coughs> different career. And we had a question over here in the front. 
Uh, Theresa Clifford, uh, Seascape Digital Agency. Um, my question follows on, really, um, because I was looking at the job market more from the perspective of where should people go to get the jobs, because China, Asia, Pacific Rim, more and more people are actually going to China to get jobs. And the architectural um, industry, I know a lot of architects are now moving over to China because that's the only place that construction is actually happening at the moment. Um, more and more people are moving to Australia, New Zealand. You know, is this the sort of thing, given that... You know, that is where the dynamism, the economic dynamism is, is really going and will be over the next 20 years. I think you're right, so it will sort of dominate the world economy. Do we really have to start thinking completely differently about the job market and what we do from here on? Journalism is, 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 is one profession where people are often told, uh, you know, if, if you want to get into journalism, go somewhere where something might be about to happen. You could really make your name as a new journalist. Anybody's in Tunis at the moment. They're obviously in a, a very good situation. What, what, what do you think about that? What would you advise people to do? Um, about journalism or just, or just generally? generally? I think if you're young, free and single, yeah, no, go. Um, absolutely, if you can go. But uh, I think there's, we've got a kind of reverse situation going on because, I mean, I was watching the uh, Frank Field stuff on Monday on Panorama about feckless fathers and his argument and the whole argument about cutting benefit is that, in fact, there are loads of jobs. It's just that we've imported immigrants to do them. So it's like what kinds of jobs we're talking about for who? And indeed, you know, I mean, some of James's advice is brilliant, and I wish it, he could talk to job centres, because job centres don't give this sort of advice to people at all. They don't give them any skills. I mean, when my, my, when my kids go to the job centre, they just say, oh, you seem quite good. Do you want to work in the job centre? <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 this is... No, I know several people who've got jobs in the job centre. I mean, but they don't send them anywhere else. Um, but yes, I would, I would prefer people to be able to move if they can. But I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. It's a huge ask, isn't it? To say to people, you know, you've got to go to school, learn Chinese for, from the age of six, become an architect and then go. <laughs> yeah. S Sarah, uh, these two issues, language and international experience, how important do you think they are in the, in the areas you operate in? Um, I think they're both very important. And, and certainly, you should look at language as you would at any other skill. Um, particularly for the large global organisations, its staff are its best commodity. If you have a skill that makes you transferable to other offices, then of course that's going to be a great highlight for them. So also having that international experience on the CV is great. So um, I think the reverse is true. We have a lot of international students studying here um, who like to come over, gain some experience in the UK and actually export that back to their home countries. So I think really we should be looking at doing, doing the same. Right, question at the back over there. Thank you. Uh, Tony Gillen, I wanted to ask about the implications of this discussion for education and then the knock-on impacts back on uh, uh, the world of business and, and employability. I was very struck by James's comment about the right attitude, but I know a lot of academics who are being told under the new regime, think about how you market your course because your job depends on it. That doesn't seem to hold up a high prospect of breeding the sort of independent thinking, analytical, critical, articulate, prepared to speak your mind type of a person, which I think from what Chantal was saying, can come from a liberal arts education. The question is, <laughs> academics, academics are being told, to survive, you've got to sell your course. 
you've got to bring the students in. What is that going to do to the kind of education we're offering? Is there going to be a place, and tell me if I've got it right, for that broader liberal arts education in view of the fact that people have got to sell their courses? Does it matter that they've got to sell their courses or should they have to? Um, I think as a business, and I think education is becoming a business, it's very accountable now. It's very financially measured. I think with the whole issue of league tables and transparency, you know, I think whether we like it or not, I think we've entered into that environment where measurability is absolutely key. So there's clearly a lot of pressure, I think, on the academics, you know, to perform and to deliver and to deliver results. Ultimately, I think whether you're from the art sector or from your business sector, you know, when I, mean, I did a, a session recently with, with some, some people looking for jobs, and I put them in two rooms and I said, you know, on the left-hand side, you think you're going for an interview. On the right-hand side, what I'd like you to think of is this is not an interview. This is a sales presentation. And the objective of the sales presentation is like in any cell, you have to establish the need of the client and you have to present a solution. And this particular example, you are the solution. And it was amazing just the change of mindset that people had because I think the concept of interviewing in itself has different connotations. But the reality is an interview is a sale because unless you can understand what the need of the employer is, what exactly are they looking for? And I think if candidates or potential candidates could balance the difference between questions and answers, and I absolutely recommend that every interview should be at least a 50-50 situation. 50% of the time is about you asking the questions to demonstrate who you are, and 50% of the time is the employee, employer asking the questions. The general norm is it's 80-20. So 80% of the time is taken up by the employer saying, tell me about yourself, what have you done, and your qualifications, etc., etc. What tells me is actually the candidate didn't really get a grasp of what's the job all about. So they don't perform very well at the second interview, and most interviews are a process. So I think the core message, certainly from my own experience, is if we could, the way we prepare potential students is make them realize that the interview concept is a sales scenario. And I think if just by putting it that way, you will certainly see them come to life better than they are at the moment. Julia would like to say something. I wanted to say that I do think um, internships ought to be paid. And we're a tiny company, but we have a policy of absolutely no more than a couple of weeks unpaid internship, and then we pay, and we make it clear that we have obligations to our interns, and then if there aren't jobs, we explain that there aren't jobs or we upgrade them. I think there is an unregulated dangerous territory emerging where reputable so-called brand businesses think it is okay to hire people for nothing and I don't think it is in this so that's an issue however from the employers point of view I do think that a lot of whether they're graduates or young people they come woefully inadequately prepared for the real life of the jobs market they don't know anything about networking or reading or being plural or self-educating. I don't have a degree either. It is partly to do with the innate natural confidence and class that you're born with, and it's partly about the self-improvement. And I think the whole culture of 
what we tell people who want to work, regardless of whether it's in Indonesia or with a Chinese language, has got to change. And I think, to some degree, this over-reliance on the degree, albeit the marvellous degrees from Cass Business School, doesn't cut it. We're starting to see much more of a trend, actually, of employers starting to pay for internships, partly because of the minimum wage rules. Um, it's really not clear whether internships fall within certain regulations or not. So there are still a lot of companies that are offering unpaid, um, but certainly a lot of the, the larger companies we deal with now won't actually take anybody on unpaid, um, partly also for insurance purposes. People have to be on the payroll to be insured when they're on their... Uh, company premises. So we are starting to see much more of a move away from that, but, but certainly I can understand that there are certain industries where I think it's been regular practice and it's going to be much more difficult to um, stamp out. Certainly on our internship programme, um, I run a session called, it's, it's known as the etiquette session, and it's sort of, um, uh, it's one of the ones that was actually Peter Whitehead at the FT came to, to listen in on, sit in on, and the whole point of it was to equip our students from very different diverse backgrounds about walking into a room, about that first handshake, and I make them all shake my hand and look at me and give me the proper handshake, and little things that really, that's just the etiquette about running a meeting and, and answering and responding, but one of somebody I worked with years ago had this wonderful expression about responsable and if somebody had this sense of taking responsibility they filled up the photocopy if it was out of paper they just had a greater sense of awareness and willingness to pitch in and to help and that's something I think again with students in universities and and, and either home life or some other form where there's an opportunity to help them with the small little things that make a difference um, and certainly from, from, from our internship, that's exactly, we pay them, we pay them over the minimum wage and they get their travel paid and that's often another area that really people can help a lot with is they just can't afford the travel. Um, so I would absolutely agree, internship paid and then also um, make sure that along their lives there's, an, there's a moment of equipping them either at university or school, how to, how to hold yourself, how to present yourself. Yes, I can attest to that. I, I attended uh, one of Chantal's company's events. I actually found it quite disconcerting the way these young people came marching up to shake everybody's hand. <laughs> They'd certainly taken that one in. Um, Suzanne, let's try and just pull these two points together. This question about what academia should be for. Should it be about preparing people for the workplace? Is it fair not to do that? And should academics have to basically sing for their sup? If they're running a course that nobody's interested in, well, why should we continue paying for it? Well, I, I don't like this utilitarian approach to education. I don't think a degree is only about getting a job. I think I probably need to go on Chantel's course, actually, and be taught how to get a job because, um, you know, I've just been self-employed for years, so I haven't dealt with it. But I believe that people should do languages like ancient Norse, you know. I believe, I mean, I've come over a bit Boris Johnson or something, but I do believe that a lot of education gives you this ability to think critically. And I, I'm, I am for media studies, you know, because you, we live in a media world. We need to analyse what's going on around us. I don't care whether people are doing English or media studies. I care whether they can communicate and whether they can put things together and connect things. That's what a degree should give you and be able to write a decent sentence. I've been an editor. I mean, many academics can't write a sentence. You know, you're commissioning these people. Um, but I would, I think there's two separate things. One is preparing people for a job and telling people how to behave and shake hands and what you call etiquette. And the other is, you know, I do believe three years of your life should not be about necessarily 
the great career. I, I would like people to have the privilege of three years of reading and learning and thinking, and I would like academics to be able to be academics. Hi, Lindsay Johnston. I work for UBS Investment Bank, where I'm happy to say um, both our intern and our grad programs are expanding in 2011. Um, but sort of developing on the previous points, a very hot topic in my department at the moment is the extent to which we should be partnering directly with uh, universities and other institutions to develop tailored courses. It seems to be sort of more and more um, something that, for example, the accountancy firms are doing, I think, with Durham and, you know, we're based here in the city. You know, w what experience do you have and what's your view? I mean, you, you, you've articulated very eloquently your view around, and I think it's probably mine as well, is university is not just about preparing you for the job market. But I think there is a feeling very much in, in my organisation at the moment, we take quite a significant number of graduates, shouldn't we a bit, be a bit more targeted about, you know, about partnering with institutions and getting people through the door who are a bit more equipped with the basics of, of what we do? Chantal, do you want to address that? I was just thinking about a comment, though, I, when we worked with the University of East London, and they, um, about in a slightly different context, about how certainly some of the, the, the financial services are looking to improve their CSR standing. And so they link a lot of work with universities and different sort of different communities through their CSR. And they were saying, oh, you know, just another one turning up to paint our school wall. Can't they do something a little bit more um, direct and innovative and, and actually really help? So when we went along they said well show us what you're really going to do for us and I think that point about um, big business being able to help on a very practical real level and I read something about the PwC this morning actually putting people into environments for a month at a time in order to equip them with leadership skills but also to bring their skills to an organization um, or a charity or, or so forth so I think in terms of um, Yes, universities being more having visiting speakers coming in to give case studies. I mean, there's so much theory around, and someone saying, "Let me tell you what happened," and this case and this case would be brilliant. So, absolutely, I imagine that students. We know when we run things that if there's a real case study and there's real examples and people can bring to bear experience and, and examples, that it's really impactful. Um, whether you tailor a whole module, it just looks, you have a risk of the branding, don't you? And so how are you branding yourself and how are you positioned? And I'm sure that's more complicated. But Sarah, this question of partnering, how, what's your approach to that? Um, I, I think you'd have to be quite careful in terms of how that, that approach works. Um, certainly with the volume of, of business schools and universities, if you have specific companies partnering solely with one institution, um, it, really I think you're actually uh, affecting the diverse population of graduates that you could source from. Does that mean you would only accept people from that university onto that program? As you said, you know, are, are there going to be certain programs that are p particularly labelled, well, do this program, you'll get into UBS? for example. So I do think you have to be, be careful. I certainly agree. I think there needs to be more input from business into maybe the contents of certain courses. And I know certainly here we have a lot of people from business that sit on advisory boards advising us, you know, what they want to see. Um, and we try to bridge that with the academics and, and try to produce something that, that is both great in terms of, of academic knowledge, but also with that, that practical knowledge as well by using the visiting lecturers, etc. So I think it's, it's getting a combination of both um, and maybe not being too overly focused in one direction. I think just on that point about preparation, I, I think I absolutely agree that, that students should not spend three years preparing for a job. 
but I do believe that maybe the last term of the university degree course would be wholly appropriate to, to give them a bit of exposure because it's not a three-year preparation. You know, you can have a four-week program. And my daughter just graduated uh, from university and, and just watching the amount of downtime and the spare time that university students have, there is a lot of opportunity that you can utilise more effectively in terms of giving them more awareness and the importance of what they need to do. I think, and I, and I fully endorse and agree, that it should be you know, interns should be paid. One of the things that slightly concerns me is when you've got 18% unemployment in that field, I would be very nervous to do anything that prevents graduates from getting the opportunity of getting that intern opportunity. And if, you know, government stipulates legislation that prevents that and organisations then stop taking interns, then are we cutting our nose to spice our face? So, you know, I think clearly a very strong argument that says they should be paid but right now, if, if employers said, well, look, if you're going to legislate against that, we don't have the funds, we don't really have the opportunity. We thought we were doing you know, a service to take people on, to give them the work experience, and as a result of legislation, it stops happening. Are we being more detrimental to the potential graduates? So, yeah, I think there are two sides of that particular argument, and I'm not sure either one is right or wrong, but I wouldn't want to do anything, because I'm concerned that 18% for a Western economy like Britain to have unemployment at that rate for graduates, I think is quite concerning. We've got a question over here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to talk about internships a bit because I have a big choice because I have a lot of people applying to Vogue and we really appreciate their help, it's true. But my choice is to either pay one person or have seven people on my team who perhaps could benefit from having the experience of Vogue and having Vogue on their CV, which really will make a difference to their career. So I think part of our responsibility is to mentor the people who come into the magazine. And through giving a good interview process, entry interview, exit interview, to talk about the CV, the application, how did the interview go, talk them through it as you go. This is what you did well, this was not so good. And when you leave, these are things I think you'd be good at. Here's some ideas of who you could write to next. So I think it's more than just paying people or not paying people. It's how you use people, what they get from it, and what you can contribute to their opportunities in the future, and keep in touch as well if they were really good. Also, you can do competitions. We do a writing competition, which means somebody who hasn't been to a university can also have an opportunity that perhaps they would never have dreamt of uh, otherwise. Uh, so I think we can think quite broadly about how to help young people to get on in, in these difficult professions. Right. Is, that, is that the general? I mean, you must be inundated with people. Inundated, hundreds every week. Okay. I look at letters and uh, CVs, and it's surprising how bad most of them are, actually, yeah. uh, unfortunately. And sometimes I feel the careers advice that they are given is really counterproductive. They're told to write a letter, put a personal statement, put it on their CV. You read the same thing maybe three times on one application. So you're wasting your time reading something that you only needed to read once. Uh, so the other thing is I think that interview technique is really important and many people really have no clue about how to communicate. So you've spent three years working your socks off or even longer if you've been at school and you've got your, all your A stars, but at the end of it, you really can't speak because you've just had your head in a book. 
Right, we've got a question in the front. I think we'll take this one first, yeah. Just to bring you back, actually, between the difference between econ um, employability and education. I'm a student. My name is Luke Dillonman. I study at CAS. And um, personally, I would be horrified to see that education um, was put up against almost employability, because they're two very different things in my eyes. Someone can be very educated, and no one will give them a job. But the, the, goal, the goal is education, and although I think employability is, is very important, and I hope to be employed at the end of this master's, um, I think that employability is something you have to work on in your own time, and there's a careers uh, department there to help you, and you can do further studies. So I would say that professors should not have to fight to be able to teach something that can educate people. So, Suzanne, a student who's ready to stand on his own two feet, not asking the academics to prepare him for it. I just, I just wondered, listening to, to what you were saying there about the letters and the CVs, and you've all had much more experience of this than I have, um, if ca I mean, careers advice is any better now than it was when I was at school. Because when I, went to, when I was at school and I said, I want to travel, they said, you can be an air hostess. Can you imagine? Uh, an air hostess, which would be you know, everybody's nightmare, or go in the army. I mean, it was so mad. And that was the only way that they thought I could travel. And most people's careers advice was completely counterproductive. And I've seen with my own kids, um, I'm sorry, but it's very biased. If you're a girl, you become a nurse, or you do that. If you're a boy, this. Uh, why is careers advice at a general level in school so bad? Do you think it is as bad as Suzanne's suggesting? I think it's very mixed, I think is, is the answer. Um, I can only speak particularly what we do here. We have uh, a quite a large careers department. Um, certainly most of my team are from backgrounds where they've been graduate recruiters themselves in various industries. So they've been there, they've sifted the CVs, they've done the interviews, they can pass on that information. Um, so I think not, not all universities have um, a, a sufficiently supported careers department, should I say. Um, and partly, although we have a very enthusiastic student here that's prepared to take it on his own shoulders, I think a lot of students actually don't. And and they, um, they approach the jobs market being um, really slightly naive, um, even if, if certain uh, careers advice is on offer, they don't necessarily always accept that. So whether that's integrated within a course so that, that it's part of it and employability sits within the academic content is a whole other question. I do think a lot of universities have it on offer, it's whether it's taken up. Well, James has got to leave, as I said, so first of all, thank you very much. And we had another question over here. I'm Chris Neal. I run uh, GB Job Clubs, a charity that uh, runs groups for people who uh, uh, want to get themselves into work. We've seen an influx of graduates over the last year. Um, and the self ethos of a job club has proven to be very valuable for, for a lot of the graduates. Uh, we tend to try and get them to uh, engage with everybody within the group not feel that they're a sort of separate class because you know there's a lot of people looking for work not just graduates out there something that's been very empowering I've noticed for the graduates who've come through is when we get them to do CV work with people who've never written a CV before who've come from a blue-collar background um, it's very empowering when they're helping one another 
Uh, so it's just an observation and a comment, really, rather than a question. Thank right. You. I mean, Sarah, you've been involved in, in, in something along these lines in, in outplacement and so on, people supporting each other through this experience. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what could be done. I mean, it's very interesting at the level you're doing it with people looking for their first jobs or people who've been in work. Absolutely. I think, I think things such as Jobs Club are really valuable. Um, the unfortunate thing is that, that not everybody is aware of them um, and uh, particularly when you're going through something such as a redundancy which is something that, that, that I was dealing with in terms of um, the clients that I was working with, quite often it's having that moral support to get you through that process and, the, and really a, um, a group that can give you that confidence as well as the practical tips to approach the job market um, and I think that is the counterbalance the, of what we have with some of our graduates where um, they're actually slightly overconfident in their ability and uh, their preparation and think they will walk into the jobs as opposed to maybe people that are already in the jobs market and uh, potentially looking either for uh, a new role or as I said have been made redundant and are looking to get back in so that there seems to be quite a, a large gap in terms of, of their approaches. I think one thing I would just comment about anyone in the room who's putting their CV together. The trouble is that you go to very, very different search firms who might have, a, have give you advice about which way you want to do your CV. You show your friends and your friends give you all their pennies worth. And it's, it's really difficult to get that CV looking the way you think it's going to meet the, um, uh, the, the prospective employer. And, and, and I think one of the, just on a generic point, I, I, you know, the amount of people who write their standard CV and think that will do for a, any range of jobs they're sort of going for any different types of businesses and so as a, as a just a general tip in terms of adjusting people your CV all the time you can have many versions of your CV but it's just you might pr choose to highlight certain areas of experience based on the the job or the company you're going to or the sector you're interested in it doesn't have to be this sort of uh, in stone piece and um, I think it's just something people don't realize quite often they only have the one and then you say well tell me more about this experience and they haven't drawn that out because they didn't think that was so interesting so um, I think that would just be a tip about and showing other people and taking some of it with a pinch of salt your mother will say you ought to be saying something and your best friend will say something else and um, you know an objective third party or someone who doesn't know you and is telling you you know how you're coming across I mean, one of the really simple things is how many people write the word I I, 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 all the way down their CV or on their covering letter. And I just put a pen down every single time I read I, because it's more about working. There are always examples of when you could talk about other things you've done or how you've worked with other people or the team. So there are some really simple CV tricks, but I agree. I think trying to get um, a fix-all for one, for one approach isn't, isn't the best way. But. There's a question at the back. Thank you. Um, name's Judith Irwin. I'm from the Institute of Business Ethics. Just two points. One is on careers advice, and I think someone else touched on it. Um, I, I've got two degrees from two relatively prestigious, dare I say it, uh, universities in the UK. Um, the latter of the two careers advice was excellent, but I just think it needs to start at high school. No one sat down and said to me at high school, right, if you know, you'd like to be um, an investment banker, then you need to do this for your degree. And to do that for your degree, you need to do this for your A-levels. And even you need to do this then for your GCSEs. Um, and I think I also got told I could be a farmer <laughs> because I said I liked animals. The other thing is the role of the private, the role of the private sector, I think it, they have a much bigger role to play 
and, and room to engage with universities in developing students for the workplace. I had a, an opportunity to study in America at a business school and it was excellent. The private sector were in there doing talks to us, you know, case studies. They did mock interviews with us. They, what else? Uh, lots of other things. We had etiquette dinners, something like similar to what Chantal was talking about. Networking skills, everything. And I, a lot of what I learned there serves me today in my, my job. Private sector with private education, I do know several schools um, where uh, they run uh, dinners um, for the boys aged 14 or, and they're all there having, and they have a speaker that comes and they all learn how to um, behave appropriately during, during, a, um, during a meal and how to thank someone for coming and I mean it's quite an elite school I have to say but I, I did hear about this the other day and I thought wow that was really something very simple and actually quite achievable for, um, for certainly for obviously this is a boarding school but that sense of equipping them with how to, how to I mean my upbringing was about you stand up and someone walks in the room and, and you know, when we have this internship, they all just sit there carrying on chatting when someone important's coming. You say, yeah, show, show some recognition and, and some simple tips. So um, uh, interestingly uh, about, yes, those small, small ways of helping people to, to do better in life is, is a tricky element, isn't it? We've been talking predominantly about young people. As I said at the beginning, uh, you know, we've had a, a change in the default retirement age. There is this expectation that people are going to carry on working for longer, sometimes because they want to, sometimes because they have to. Um, what are the particular challenges that we're going to see of people who are, well, coming into the workplace after a time away or people trying to stay in jobs where perhaps their companies wish they wouldn't stay any longer? Well, I think um, one of the more interesting areas is when if someone's at a point of changing roles at around that 60, 63 type time, and, um, and, uh, or 65, you know, whatever age, and they're already seen as having done the lion's share of their career. So from the employer, there's going to be a massive behavioral shift because currently, you know, uh, uh, many employers will be thinking, do I, do I want to take this person on? So um, that'll be a shift of, of opinion. So we might present a shortlist and it might have you know, the, the full range of ages, but will our employer behave any differently? They'll, they may still, will the client still, they may still choose one age over another. Um, but equally, I think one of the areas is the lack of, we talked about graduates at the beginning, the more people that stay and work for longer, the chances are there's less movement and people won't move from about 50 something onwards because they're concerned about how they're going to find their next job. So it could just stagnate um, some of the circulation and some of the fresh opportunities for, for the next for the next load of um, graduates. So I think that's going to be an issue going forward, um, both whether employers will, will, you know, we have clients still who say to us, you know, I, I really, I'm really looking for someone in their 30s. And, uh, I'm really looking, only, I only want a short list of men or I only want a short list of women. Really? Okay. And then we just, I have to say, we, we ignore it and just um, still present. We say, we're, we're known for providing a wide range. We'd like to challenge you on your thinking on this. You know, please think openly. And, but it's quite shocking. It's quite shocking, I have to say. It still goes on quite a lot. Suzanne, do you think we're going to see the culture change necessary to accommodate this sort of thing? I think it's a fantasy. Um, you know, we've got this high youth unemployment um, and then people are going to sort of work till they're 70 and then still have no pension. I can't understand it. Um, I certainly don't want old people in a lot of jobs, actually. I don't want my children taught by sort of knackered teachers at 65. I don't want a scaffolder who's going to fall off my scaffold. I mean, I'm sorry, I think it's just fantasy about for certain people in certain jobs, but 
we would have to change the culture vastly in ways that I can't, I can't see happening. Uh, my name's Julian Noakes, and uh, I do not work for UK Business Incubation. I have two colleagues run a website called Retirement Reinvented, and this is a non-profit um, aggregation site, which is designed to help people who have retired either voluntarily or been forced to do so to get off their, this is an American expression, butts and make use of their experience. And it's there on the website and you're welcome to look at it. But I think that addresses the point. Clearly, um, we're not suggesting that, that somebody like me becomes a scaffolder for you because A, I have a bad head for heights and B, you know, I can understand. I think that the, there are lots of opportunities for people who've retired, uh, and 50 seems to be the age. Obviously, you don't work for the BBC because they have a different view on these things too. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Kate. I run a global business school networking site called businessbecause.com. Um, CAS are one of our partner schools, in fact. Um, there's been loads of really interesting discussion about internships and jobs, which I'm assuming are, are focused much more in the UK market, but we have thousands of students, both at the postgrad level and sort of MBA and MSc level, who are international students. I'm just wondering what the panel thinks about how these guys actually get a foot in the door to even get an internship, let alone a job, with kind of um, increasingly restrictive work permit situations, because I mean, I, we hear about these situations every single day and they're very talented individuals, but they can't even get an interview. Sarah, you must have to deal with this quite a bit. It's an increasing problem. Um, there's not a clear-cut answer at the moment. Obviously, the government's in consultation for a number of different alterations to post-study work visas. Um, however, I would say a lot of the companies that actively recruit here, for example, are global and international companies. Um, and they are also part of the consultation. And actually, they like to recruit international um, candidates because they are part of a global business. And they will sometimes sponsor visas. Um, the competition is very, very tough. Um, but we're also seeing an increase, actually, in, in the number of students that are looking in a much wider sphere. A lot of them would come to the UK to work in the UK, but actually now a lot are wanting to return to native countries using the experience that they've gained here. So I think the, I think the landscape's really sort of changing somewhat. Um, and we'll continue to do so until there's, there's clarification, I think, around the whole post-study work visa situation. Thank you. Any, any other questions? Well, we're coming almost towards the end, but I just wanted to, to, to raise one other work-related point. Uh, Nick Clegg, as well as introducing us to the concept of uh, alarm clock Britain, um, also has, uh, well, he's addressed himself to people who don't need alarm clocks because they've got very small children who are waking them up and suggested that um, fathers should be taking more paternity leave and that there should be greater legal provision for uh, paternity leave. Um, Suzanne, what, 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 what do you think is going to happen? Do you think we're going to see oh, fathers taking... you agree with Nick? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm... Uh, in an ideal world, uh, I agree with Nick, um, but you know, we just saw the headlines today in the mail. I mean, small businesses will fight that hand and tooth, and they're claw and tooth, isn't it? Um, and it's, uh, we were discussing this earlier, be, it will be very difficult to put into operation patchy bits of leave. And um, I support the idea, in theory, I don't think it's got a chance, um, and I think it's a sort of... I mean, Nick is still looking to Europe, isn't he, to... to 
for our work practices and we're at a time when we're doing the absolute opposite but yes in theory have the men at home looking after the babies yes but it's Nick Clegg you know. Chantal is this something you're seeing any demand for in the workplace? Um, I think it's about uh, retaining talent and I think one of the areas about um, either a male or female in terms of employees seeing the long game and if you have um, you know if it's about retaining talent and, and it's worth it and it means that that loyalty and that commitment from will be repaid with the, somebody staying I think where there's a high turnover of staff that must be absolutely frustrating beyond belief because of course from an employer's point of view you give this and then the next minute they're off and they haven't it's that there's sort of no no sense of um, commitment but um, I, I think it's a, for the small and medium-sized business really really difficult to to see through um, no reason in theory whether it can be man or woman but it's, it's a tricky bit to implement right well thank you all very much uh, thanks to our panel to uh, Chantal to Suzanne and to Sarah and uh, thanks to all of you for coming and uh, thank you very much <laughs>